Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and when I show up in the dream room, I have a microphone. And I'm Scott Daly, and when I show up in the dream room, I have a gun. And then I shoot you and take your microphone. So I have a microphone. <laughs> this is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of Gregor Glue Bridges, weaponized misery, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret our, this ongoing web serial. This week, Infrared continues with chapters 19.4 and 19.b. Victoria and the rest of the Cape Army arrive at a location for the oncoming battle with Fortuna. In the calm before the fight, our characters all check up with each other, and uh, none of them are doing great. Not even Chris. As the cracks begin to spread, we once again cut back in time for an interlude with Gilpatrick, as he and a small squad prepare to follow Rain into the dream room. We figure out who the stowaways are, but Love Lost Shard uses some good old-fashioned emotion blasting that knocks out all the humans, but opens them up to a well of power. Matt, what do you think of these two chapters? Well, uh, 19.4, it's going to be fun to talk about. Things are very intense. There's this, there's this feeling of... Uh, tension before the storm. Everything is yeah. very on edge. Everything I think is very precarious is a word we're going to be using several times today. And then of course the Gilpatrick interlude was the interlude we didn't know we'd been waiting for. Um, yeah, but it's a, he's a great, he's a great character to be in his head. Um, I, I don't know. I just found him uh, to be a very cool new character. Fun, fun, yeah. fun. And um What's the word? I guess like powerful, like like just, just the the writing that the way the way he kind of thinks and is, I found very um resonant. Cool. Yeah. I liked him a lot too. Um I really liked his chapter. I do think and I think we got this confirmed by the author afterwards, but it it felt like it wasn't a complete chapter. Um it felt like there was so much more to do there. And that's because th- there is. Oh. And so I think we're gonna be getting more. So <clears throat> good. Cause I wanted more. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, let's let's get on into things. Quick announcements. Um, I think the Doof the Right Thing uh, writing contest is wrapping up. Friday, right? Friday. So so get in your stories again. The the requirements are, are very reasonable and the prize money is very good. So so consider submitting to that. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the all packed up uh 24 hour live stream we're going to keep talking about this until it's here it's coming up this march march 6th the guys are going to be live streaming for 24 hours to celebrate deep impacts completion of wild bows pact and uh we're going to be there i think our friends from do the right thing are going to be there there's going to be other other fun guests and activities and it's going to be a, a charity live stream that that both elliot and ruben are putting on to benefit i think it's a homeless charity right i yeah, can't remember the name for, of it hom- i should know this yeah for i, I think for homeless kids yeah, yeah i, I forget yeah. as well but yeah it's 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 a really nice idea that they're doing 24-hour live stream those mad lads it's yeah. gonna be it's gonna <laughs> be really insane. fun I think, they're insane and i love them <laughs> i think we've committed to being there for three of those hours yeah and um, i'm like whew, that's a lot of hours yeah right <laughs> like oh man I, I can try to fit it in um and then last announcement why don't you talk about this one scott this is your baby 
Sure. Uh, our podcast, our long-awaited podcast covering Stephen King's Dark Tower series called The Kingslingers begins, uh, if you're listening to this episode, the day it came out, on the 15th, tomorrow, on January 16th, episode one of Kingslingers covering the first chapter of The Gunslinger, the first book in the series, comes out, and it'll come out every Thursday from then on for... Uh, I, I I did it all out today, Matt, for the next 16 months. <laughs> so all right. um, it's been this has been a long time in the making this show. I'm very excited about it. Um, and I think that shows in our episode. Uh, it's it was a really fun conversation. We've already recorded that one and I can't wait for everyone to hear it. So uh, go to doofmedia.com slash Kingslingers and there you'll find the links to subscribe to the podcast everywhere that this podcast is. It's also there and the the little introduction episode is up too so we hope you guys give that show a chance if you've never read the dark tower you'll be like matt and journey through it for the first time or if you have read it many times and just want an excuse to talk about it you can be like me and uh we will we will have fun together i can't wait yeah wait at the very least just check it out to see how i do as the scott and how scott does as the matt because yeah for us, it's actually really weird. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. Oh, my God. The preparation of the script and then the podcast itself was like, it's just different. It's very different. Yeah. Um, but I look forward to the challenge and it's <clears throat> going to be a lot of fun. So Kingslingers cool. out now, sort of. Yeah, basically. All right, Scott, 19.4. And we open up with the small army of 70 or so capes making their way toward the cracks, aiming for a specific spot where the terrain is split up so badly that there's actually an ever-present danger of falling uh, through the cracks. Uh, it's, it's, uh, Victoria compares it to being on rooftops. It's uh, precarious, you could say, and in fact, Victoria uses that word. I think the whole chapter is precarious, actually. Uh, some, some capes are working to shore up that precarity, Tristan and Gregor prominently among them, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, this is, as we talked about in the intro, this is the setting of our big confrontation. Our, our characters are here and they're just waiting for Fortuna to come. And nothing about this battlefield is secure and stable, just like our heroes, right? It's the perfect way that the environment matches the the tone of the book. It matches the feeling of our characters. It's, it's really precarious. Um, I think this metaphor extends out really good with Tristan later in the chapter, too. I think that the things that the chapter is doing around this central idea of the setting and what's going on with Tristan is really, really great. Um, but I, I think it's interesting that Wild Bill goes further here and links it back to fighting on rooftops, which has a very specific connotation for warm readers. Like we remember we were in the head of Taylor. We know the, one of the first lessons she learned in the world of Capedom was it's bad to fight on a roof. Don't I, do that. It's I love real that. bad. Yeah. I, I love that poll. I mean, c- comparing it to the beginning of worm because it, it gives it a feeling of connection and, and I don't know, it gives us a feeling like, uh, things are like, like reaching back to that point that that's, yeah. that, that feels powerful and meaningful. Right. I agree. I totally agree. Cool. Um, Also, as a side note, we said last week that for the most part, these cracks into the world uh, result mostly in people falling down into the shard world. Like we talked about that as helping reinforce the idea of this infrared uh, name, meaning this underworld, this trip to, to Hades almost. And that's still absolutely true. But I think it is important to say that we do see two cracks around this setting <clears throat> that that go that go up, that go up into the sky and split the sky open. Um, and and I, I think it's important just to mention that, that these do exist. It's not all just under. Um, but I think this is cool because it kind of mirrors how the 
end of this chapter goes right because at the end of this chapter these cracks are going to arc up fortuna and i think it kind of mirrors that so it's kind of reinforcing that yes these cracks are not just in the ground and we're going to pay that off when we see them go through the titan yeah i guess that is a really interesting it's a small touch because i know that i know that the text said that the the cracks were were not really two-dimensional they were three-dimensional so some of them presumably went off in all directions but i think it is kind of good to remind us prior to the ending of the chapter like yeah they can totally do that and so we're not surprised by that yeah yeah so uh, victoria and sveta uh, in contrast to uh tristan and, and gregor's approach their kind of strategy for getting people around is to lift people across the gaps and then kind of put them in place where they need to be and I really want to see this as like two different strategies for dealing with issues in general. Like if, if we view the whole concept that everyone is dancing around on these these sort of islands of, of land um, with with cracks between them, then th- that's a metaphor for like how they're doing in general. Well, Tristan and Gregor are the type of people who want to try to build bridges and repair the cracks, even if in Tristan's case, his building material is literally rubble that just crumbles. Uh, whereas Victoria and Sveta, their approach has more to do with just jumping over the cr- cracks, which solves it. Sort of, it sort of addresses the issue, right? Because you get you get over the cracks, but yeah. you have to do you have to do that every time, right? And right. It's, it's not a permanent solution. And um, I couldn't quite make this metaphor like really hold up, you know, under scrutiny. But but just trying to kind of view this in the light of being a metaphor, I think it's it's interesting to think about, even if I don't know if I can like do anything further with it if you know what i mean yeah i know what you mean i mean i i like it a lot for victoria and i don't want to denigrate any of the progress that victoria has fought hard for and earned throughout this book on herself but i think it is generally true that victoria's solution to solving problems is let's just just put it over there just i'm just gonna just hop over it to fix it just i'm i'm past it now i got past it i got past the problem look it's behind me now i don't need to deal with that again um that's like uh, that's kind of what she does so i think i think this i think this fits i had a, a harder time like marrying it to sveta but um she's mostly just kind of helping what is sveta exactly doing is she like leaping across and bringing people with yeah, her yeah i think she's like grabbing people around the around the waist with her tendrils and then yeah. um, pulling them over yeah i think this metaphor works i mean i don't think we have to go super deep with it yeah. beyond that i think one of the things that made it that made me think that i was on kind of the right track was that they talk specifically about um uh, tristan like wanting to test the stability of the of the structure he had built. I think that was mm-hmm. the language that the Victoria used. We might get there in a minute, but um, that's literally kind of what he's doing here. Like he's trying to build up something and then relax and, and trust that it's actually still there. And he wants to get to a place where he doesn't feel like he's kind of fighting constantly, which is, yeah. it is reminiscent of what Victoria has said recently, where she, she's tired of enduring. And, you know, the idea of having like constantly lift people between between islands is the kind of thing where it's like, well, you just have to keep doing it. There's, yeah, yeah. That you didn't come up with any other solution, so you just have to keep doing it. Um, right, and and to kind of play with the metaphor even more, like Victoria has the ability to fly over the, the, her mm-hmm. her issues, right? Whereas Tristan doesn't. Tristan has to use the tools he has. Victoria uses the tools she has, mm-hmm. and I think that is how we approach our issues as well, right? Like we we approach our issues with the tools in our mental utility belt that we have. Yeah. Um. So I like that. I like cool. that a lot. 
So Victoria then tries to lift a big heavy armored guy using her force field, and he kind of flips out, causing her to drop him. This this event further reinforces how on edge everyone everyone and everything feels about this situation. Um, but once again, Crystal has her back, helping with uh, the guy's outburst and kind of smoothing it over. Yeah, I, we're going to have a lot to say about Crystal here, but I, I love that this kind of calls back to the first moment that she picked up Tristan and Tristan like freaked the fuck out. Yeah. And, and I remember you and I talked about, it's like, Hey, maybe like warn people before you do that. Nope. No, no lesson learned there. At least with Tristan, there was some level of trust. So he didn't like completely freak out, but this is just some random dude that she just says, Hey, you want to ride? Yeah, sure. And then suddenly he's being picked up. And I think the implication here, at least Victoria thinks is that, maybe whatever power he has allowed him to see the wretch when it came out mm-hmm. and he just like freaked out about it. And I, I love in that moment where she, she walks through that in her mind. She says, did he see you a power? I just love whenever she starts personifying waste enough to where she's directly talking to them in her thoughts. I, I love that. Mm-hmm. I, like it's, it's very specific. Like it'd be so much easier to, did she see, did she see my force meal? No, mm-hmm. no. Did he see you? I like it. Yeah, um, I, I, I adore that as well. I've I've wondered a couple times if like she's not using way more force than she realizes. Could um, be, yeah, yeah. Which would make, you know, if somebody grabs you like with crushing strength, you might react a different way. That, yeah, that's less of a less of a. I think that's what's going on, and more of a that's a possibility. But um, well, just, I mean, she she says. She, there's later in the chapter she wonders if her force field's gotten stronger mm-hmm. as part of like a part of her hypothesis for what's happened to the powers and he does say it feels like he's about to be thrown not mm-hmm. that he's being picked up that he's about to be thrown so it is very possible that she just hasn't gotten a handle on the new slightly increased strength of her force field and that is part of it i don't know yeah i mean it kind of makes sense that like if you have this force field that can crush a car into a cube you wouldn't necessarily have like the proprioceptive feedback necessary to like gently pick a person up. Um, but that, that, yeah. I don't know if that's kind of a, kind of a rabbit hole to go down or maybe her fine motor control is getting a little less fine. I don't know. Yeah. Something I don't like know. that. Yeah. Uh, so Victoria mentions that she's aware that crystal is babysitting her. Um, and she asks who has crystals back and crystal says lady photon has her back, but I don't really find it terribly convincing. And later yeah. on she says, Sarah's not even really, noticing how messed up crystal is about all of this uh so so lady photon can't really be said to be taking care of crystal in the way that crystal yeah. taking, taking care of victoria at least um and as a reminder crystal is also pretty down about how her power has changed in ways that she doesn't like yeah a lot of this is 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 kind of very interestingly hitting that hey crystal's not doing well drum a lot like yeah this has been kind of a thread throughout this now right we had that whole interaction between crystal and tristan two chapters ago last chapter i don't remember where they talked about being on like joining their support team for the the un uh i forget like the people i forget what they named it but like there were people that were lost that are no longer lost you know and they're they're both on this club together so like there's a lot of work being done by the book here to kind of show crystal as as not doing very well and it's really gotten me nervous for her. And I know you've been on the I'm very nervous for Crystal train for like two months now. Right. But I'm 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 all aboard because like this makes me think like the, the level of 
not great she's doing right now makes me think back to the crystal that we saw at the beginning of this book after that horrible, horrible broken trigger event and how that nearly destroyed her. Right. I mean, she was out out of it for a while. It took her a bit to recover from that, to become functional just to exist anymore. That was a horribly emotional and devastating um, experience for her. And are we moving towards something like that again? It seems like we might be. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I've always, you know, for some time thought that Crystal was kind of a candidate for being a, a nexus point of things going wrong. But I will say that stepping back from it, I mean, we're about to see Tristan kind of flip out at somebody. Yeah. Um, the, the guy who yells at, at Victoria, like that's kind of a sign of being on edge. Um, basically, just, what? Sorry. We got Chris as well. Yeah, we got Chris being just as snarky as usual, if not more. I mean, so, so just like everybody, everybody here, including Victoria, including Sveta, is not doing well. And that is being reemphasized for us. And I think that the, the, the purpose for it is to say, I mean, first of all, just make it more dramatic. Right. But but secondly, to say that any of these people could really be on the edge. Any of these people could potentially go tighten if they get pushed just a little bit farther. Um, and that's obviously that kind of the main, the main risk that's been drilled into our heads at this point. Um, so yeah, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like something like that could be happening soon. We'll see. Yeah. And I mean, I, I like it because I think it, it allows you to like, like when we, the very beginning, I think of last arc, we were like, oh, they seem to be setting up Tristan to go Titan. And if that was the only person that the book took the time to do that with, you would be like, well, this is either so obvious that it's definitely going to happen or so obvious that it's not going to happen. But what the book has now done is it's kind of tossed a bunch of balls into the air and we don't know which ball is actually a grenade that's going to explode. Yeah. And and so there's this there's this natural tension that comes of that where we're looking at all these characters, all these characters are suffering. And I think one of the things this chapter does very well is kind of link the suffering of the characters together. Um, we're going to talk about the ways in which the stuff Tristan's going through specifically links back to Victoria in interesting ways here in a second. Um, but it's all linking this stuff together and it just helps paint this picture of it could be any of these people. We have to be ready for that possibility. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, just like we said, Tristan is yelling to go check on him. Um, and he's basically just had it up to here with somebody using ice to try to support his rubble piles. Basically, you know, the whole situation around him is like orchestrated to make him upset about losing his old power, which when, mm -hmm. you, when you think about it, it was a power that, that involved building, right. And, and ma yeah. making stable structures, which Tristan very much needed. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a perfect way to carry forward that metaphor that he's, he's desperately trying to solve his own issues, but his ability to do so has been taken away from him. Everything is too unstable, too liable to collapse. And when people try to help him, he lashes out at them because they're not helping in the correct way, um, which I mean, I don't know if this is an intentional callback, but this made me think of our conversation about Victoria's attempts to make Tristan feel better back early last arc and how you and I both kind of agreed that eh, the way you're approaching this is not really going to work for Tristan. That's not what he cares about. And so th this reminded me of that, of someone who comes over, wants to help support your, the structure that is Tristan means well, but is just not doing it the right way. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's really great. I mean, j just Victoria is this character where she's I think she's a great battlefield leader. And I think in some ways she's a great leader. But but in other ways, she's she sometimes just can't tap into certain members of her team. Right. Like we've historically seen her sort of fail to connect with Tristan, sort of fail to connect with Kinsey. Like, like uh, I think the only 
two people who I th- who I think she really got uh, were probably Swan Song, which actually took a while, and and Sveta, who she has kind of a prior relationship with. So yeah, um, yeah, I think just to kind of emphasize what what you're saying, it, it's not 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 the strongest aspect of her as a leader. Yeah, I, I will say that one one positive point if we if we continue to hang on this metaphor as if it's going to be perfect for us <laughs> uh eventually tristan does get some help from gregor to shore up his stuff right and and we leave tristan in this chapter at a place where he's gotten some help from someone else to correctly and hopefully um efficiently shore up this the the stability that he's made so maybe that's a hint through the metaphor that he's going to be okay i don't know I don't know. I mean, I like that a lot. Like, it's funny because the more I think about it, the more I realize like his old power was about creating a structure that he could lean on because he, mm-hmm. he needs something he can lean on. And his yep. new power is like, fuck you. This power is literally a rubble. It's literally <laughs> destroyed structure. Yep. Um, and, and, but then having somebody else who can be like, I'll just spit my mucus all over your rubble and then it's fine. And see, it's not so bad. Hug. It's great. It's yeah. great because Byron's power was like how he would just go in with the flow, you know? Yeah. And now it just literally stops anything from flowing. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Let, let's, let's talk about his power yeah. in a second. Cause I'm not yeah, sure if I that. fully get it, but yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. So yeah, Shamrock shows up. She prances across one of Tristan's rickety debris bridge, bridges in the middle of this conversation about how frustrated he is. Um, <laughs> and then she has the gall to throw them a wink, uh, which leads to this exchange I glanced over at Tristan, and by the look he gave me, we were on exactly the same page, despite the fact we'd come at it from different directions. He had been through it with at least one other person, and I wasn't really in the mood for fucking winks. Um, <laughs> that's just fantastic. I, I mean, I mean, I, I love everything about that. I also love the, the how it says earlier, Tristan is saying, like, please don't do that. And, and it says, yeah. um, every time she, he said please, it sounded like fucking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's great. It's really great. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's incredible the ways in which people can just like entirely accidentally piss you off really bad. Right. Like she doesn't mean any of this. Like Shamrock is not trying to upset any of these people. She just doesn't understand the situation yet. Um, And and that makes me convinced now that Fortuna is now initiated path to making Shamrock wink in front of Victoria and really piss her off. Because that's just what I'm going to assume everything is now. Yeah, sure, of course. What what this does do, I think, though, what this actually does is kind of start to connect Tristan and Victoria in our minds. We are in Victoria's point of view. We are in her mind and we understand exactly how bad she's doing because we're in there. And here we're looking at Tristan, this Tristan lashing out, this Tristan saying please, but sounding like fucking. Um, but we don't quite understand really the depths of where he is. And I think... Wildbow having them share this moment of exasperation links them together in some way and allows us to maybe understand that, okay, here's where you think Victoria is at bad. Like, here's how bad she is. Maybe you should be putting Tristan right there, too. Like, like if you think Victoria is doing bad, maybe link them together. And then Tristan's Tristan's doing real bad. And and I think that helps like, gauge his where he's at right now which is important because a lot of this chapter is kind of going through exactly what's going on in Tristan's head yeah what I was thinking about at this point was like you know we've read this book spread out over a long period of time but but I was very that was pretty much immediately immediately like Tristan has never really kind of lost it quite this badly Um, yeah yeah like just kind of snapped at someone and that 
to me says a lot about where he is. Like this is just, it's uncharacteristic of him, and so it's, it really stands out as being like, oh, okay, this is this is a symptom of of how bad he's doing. Definitely, yeah. Except for that one time with Byron, though. Yep. That's true. <laughs> that that was a time that that a bad thing happened, but he was. Calm. I think that's. I think that's kind of the the point, though. Yeah. I, and I think I think we make that connection. I think we make that connection. Well, let's let's just get to it. Yes, yeah. I think it's important. Okay. So Shamrock uh, then talks a little bit about powers changes, um, and she she uses the word heavier uh, a couple times. Other words that are used in context of the powers discussion are restless, stronger, and more power. Um, and I think like just just by this little bit of information, if I had to hand wave everything into a bin, I'd say that powers in general might have gotten more like raw destructive power and less control and less utility and less versatility. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that assessment generally. Like we were talking about for Tristan loses his ability to create walls. Crystal loses fine control, but runs hotter. Um, we're not entirely sure like what the mechanics underlying this whole powers shift are right yeah. but it seems to make sense that the computers pushed out versions of those powers which would emphasize destruction a little more uh, over anything else over defense over utility um it, it makes sense in this warped little alien mind right um yeah. which of course means we can assume that the godbirds and eggs belly are like super violent and maybe it can't smell out people anymore maybe it just eats them yeah it does it does make me wonder like um, the ones we're going to see later on, are those the same ones that he always had or are these like bigger, scarier ones? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, don't I know. mean, I wonder uh, if we'll find out. The only thing I can't quite shake is how heavier ties into that specifically. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. Like heavier would be like, you know, heavier, more powerful. I think you can kind of draw that line. Right. Um, but maybe it's just like, I don't know, you know, you get married, you put on weight and then you have an excuse. <laughs> Yeah, my powers jam. I'm totally heavier now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I was going for the connotation of heavier with like, it's heavy, man. Like, yeah, no, like, I, I get that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, I think it's something to do with all this. But I also think we don't have much data to go off, so I think we'll just wait and see. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is kind of an, the ongoing mystery of this this arc. Kind of, Victoria is we we literally see Victoria attempting to grab data and solve this, and yeah. she has a hypothesis um, that we see, I think we're going to see even more fleshed out as as more data is collected. So, yeah, she doesn't really think explicitly about it, so I think we're not no. really meant to understand yet. Do you think it's weird that she hasn't tried out her aura at all yet? <laughs> I've continually thought that her relationship <laughs> with her aura was weird. And and I, I think I said this maybe even last week, actually, just like she's she's weirdly incurious about it for being mm -hmm. this this powers nerd. And yeah, like it took her a while to to experiment with her force field that she eventually did. But she's never really at least we've never really seen her have that have that scene where she figures out, OK, what exactly is different? Yeah. I mean, to, to be charitable to her, I think she's generally like it It could really fuck people up. You like you're using this on people. You have no idea what the emotional effect on people is going to be. And I think that's something that Victoria is very conscious of, of, of emotionally fucking with people's brains, you know. So like, I like I get why she, I get I think there's a there's an in universe reason why she might be hesitant to just use it on like on allies. Yeah, but at the same time, it, it feels like a big old Chekhov's gun. I mean, think about how important Rain's um, 
crappy motion power ended up being once they kind of cracked the secret of it. But sure. Victoria spent no effort really trying to crack the secret of her own emotion power. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's been that way even before the change. Yeah. All right, so it's, I think I think you're right. It just continues to be the case. But now yeah. it's way more something. We don't know what. Yeah. So they briefly mention um, that Rain's present mission uh, basically will be over in 13 minutes. He's going to wake up in 13 minutes, which this information is a lot more important in context of the interlude that we're about to read, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I think it helps kind of orient time for this chapter and the the next one, because the next one is going to kind of jump back in time. Um, and we're not even going to get up to present day through that arc. I mean, or through that interlude. Yeah. Presumably the second half of it will get us there. Um, but I hope so. It, it really does. Like, because I think the orientation of time is important here, right? Because we have some data from from Victoria, like Victoria saw rain in the shard land through the crystals. So we know that whatever's going down in the dream room is before all that. So like, like we get, we, we understand that the, the, the bomb, like the, the bombs blowing up and her shooting the laser in the thing happens after the, after 14 dot B or 19 dot B rather. Yeah. That's my understanding as well. So, I mean, I think the point is that all this is just important to help orient us in time yes. over these next two chapters, especially when you're going to start jumping back and forth in time. It's good to help orient yourself. We, we also know that, like, whatever crazy shit that's going to go on in the dream room because of the case 53 infiltrators hasn't happened with 13 minutes left in in dream time, presumably. Right. Like, presumably, whatever they're going to do is going to be bad enough that we would know about it in this it, victoria would know about it presumably we could make that assumption yeah or, so, or i mean what they're doing causes the cracks to spread right here at the end of this chapter yeah potentially very, very possible as well yeah, yeah. but yeah no I, I agree that it's that that line is basically to anchor us in time and i think it, it actually does that pretty effectively because yeah as soon as we get to the next chapter you're like okay this is definitely way earlier and that's all i need to know i'm good yeah yep. okay so um uh, Victoria and Sveta go off to find like a telephone pole to use and Sveta <laughs> dishes on the uh, private conversation with Tristan. She tells us that Tristan was, is struggling with dark thoughts and he isn't sure what the point is anymore. And uh, one thing, one kind of specific point that Sveta conveys is like, Hey, you know, Tristan wanted to be team leader and uh, you, you kind of took that away from him, Victoria. <laughs> Yeah. And, and like we were talking about before, I, I like I think there's a lot to talk about this conversation and I want to spend some time on it because I think there's a lot of things in here that link Tristan and what Tristan is going through back to Victoria again. Like this opening part right here where she says he got into the hero stuff initially for the fame and the money for good reasons, too. But those other reasons are still reasons. And she says, yeah, I could sympathize with the wish for fame myself. So we've linked them, right? Like Tristan is in this thing um, for good reasons, but also for the fame and money. So is Victoria, right? Fame was definitely a part of it for Victoria. So that's them linked together. And then we get this other point where he says the way he phrased it, he had a moment where he just stopped, took stock and felt like he was drowning. And this is a reference all the way back to chapter 8.3. Thanks, Kayakin, for the chapter reference. Uh, when Tristan is talking to Vicky about how particularly bad he was doing back then. And here he says, um, tired, nothing big, tired of swimming, always on the cusp of drowning. Can't get away from my situation. And so now here, 11 arcs later, 
he's not on the cusp of drowning anymore. He's he's drowning. He feels like he's drowning. Um, and so, again, this is a link. It's a link back to an earlier Victoria conversation. And so now through this link, we have a good grasp on how Tristan is because we knew how bad he was back then based on his conversation with Victoria. He's worse than that now. This is worse. Yeah, it's interesting because it's sort of happened outside of my attention, at least as a reader, because I had this impression, at least, that, that he that he seemed to be doing a little bit better, especially relating to his relationship with Byron. Like they they seemed to find this peace. Um, you know, Byron got injured, and he and he seems to be really concerned about Byron, and he's kind of going out of his way to take care of him, and it all seems very positive. But we also have had plenty of moments throughout the story where, like, his family is not being particularly nice to him, yeah. especially his mom. Um, it's kind of like nothing, you know, he had this kind of setback with uh, reconciliation recently. Yeah. And, and I think, I think it's, I think in the background, we have been having kind of this set of, of data points that make up a constellation, if you will, indicating that he's just not doing great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and I think the Byron stuff is really interesting because I, I do think his, his relationship with his brother was the one thing that was going good. Mm -hmm. Right. Like he this re this thing with reconciliation really fucked him up. This thing with his parents was not great. Um, he, the guilt that he carries with him constantly messes him up. But he had this relationship with his brother that was finally going OK. And then Byron got hurt. And th there's this interesting quote back in, in 8.3 that I think matters here because he says when he's talking about how bad it is, he says, I have days where I can't do it anymore. No energy to keep fighting and pushing forward. Byron worries about me then, you know, but that's not the hard part. It's that all the time I'm also watching Byron worrying about him. Got to keep an eye out. And and in that he was talking about how he's got to keep an eye out, like making sure he's not being too hard making sure he's not taking too much control, like asserting himself too much, making sure he's trying to keep the balance and how that's exhausting. He's not doing that anymore, but he is consistently worried about Byron. Byron's injured. We don't know. We don't know. Like how his recovery is going there. The, the, the split in time is shifting because of that. It's just, his brother is a worry of a constant, another constant worry on him, on his shoulders again. And that he says back in 8.3 is the hardest part. And it's here again. He's worrying about his brother constantly. That's true. Yeah. It's, it's turned from something that was maybe potentially becoming a support into a burden again. Yeah. 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 Totally. And then, and then, so we last, the last link between, Tristan and Victoria, of course, is what you talked about at the beginning, which is the leadership role in, in Breakthrough. And this is something that to me was just so fucking relatable, right? You want to do something, but then someone else says they want to do it or they just start kind of doing it and you just kind of let them do it, right? And then you're kind of annoyed because actually that's what you wanted, but they're doing a pretty good job. So you can't like be mad about it and you don't didn't actually ever say anything to that person so you know you can't actually be annoyed by it but you're still kind of annoyed by it anyway that's like how i handle conflict <laughs> in my whole life <laughs> like that's everything i do is that so i was like oh my god i feel this so much i feel this so much tristan yeah i, I do i do feel like that's exactly what sveta is conveying here like she's basically saying like yeah sorry to tell you but he is still kind of upset about that even though yeah. it's been um a while and he's never mentioned it um and, and like and 
and it kind of you know it leads to Victoria being like, oh, I could I could you know give him leadership, like like she she's not she takes it like a champ, right? She takes this information yeah. like a champ, but but I think Sveta is right in saying like, no, nah, it's that's not that's not really the solution in this in this situation. Right. It's more like that's just part of everything that's culminated in this. Yeah, I mean, I think she even listed as like not even in the top ten of his his real struggles right now. Mm-hmm. But when you're struggling under the weight of all this stuff, even the little tiny insignificant things suddenly seem more more, you know? Yeah. Like so this is not something that I think he loses sleep over, but is just another another straw on that camel. Um, yeah. And it's yeah. And I I, I, mean, I totally agree with the, the respect for Victoria for like as, as soon as it's outlined how bad he's doing, she instantly wants to solve it. And she's like, well, here, I'll give him leadership. Will that do it? Will that solve it? It's like, no, that's not that's not the core of his problem is that he's not leader. Like, yeah. And it's just I think the powerlessness of it, the, the hopelessness of it, we're going to start we're going to talk about hope a lot for the rest of this chapter. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's really uh, it's it's wonderfully drawn. And I really like the interaction between these characters. Like we, these characters are so complicated and we spent so much time with them now that we can really just like like just what if these scenarios and say, OK, what would Victoria do if she learns that Tristan actually wants to be leader? And we can just like let that scenario play out. And it's really interesting. Did they ever officially make Victoria the leader or is she just think so. is she, like, I feel like she's just the leader because she's Carol's daughter and there's literally no other way that she would exist on this team other than yeah. basically being the leader and calling the shots and everybody being like, OK, all right. Yeah. And I, th- I think in her mind, she always kind of said, well, me and Tristan and Ashley are kind of splitting it. Um, but she was always kind of leader and Ashley died. And I think she's pushed herself like not intentionally like that's the thing about this is none of it is like her consciously being like no Tristan can't lead me me yeah that's not that's not how she operates no it's more like the decision point comes and then she's just the one who ends up calling the shot and then everyone yep. else, else listens and yep. I think partially just because she has natural leadership qualities um and she's smart and kind of knows what the right call is usually so totally yeah, yeah. cool so um they also talk about what's bothering Sveta, and I think this is important because we're kind of just canvassing everybody who's around and, and mm-hmm. kind of seeing how they're all doing. Everyone except Victoria, of course. Exactly. <laughs> um, so namely the thing that's bothering Sveta right now is the whole well lying to everybody plan. I mean, okay, Sveta says it's not really bothering her, <laughs> but I don't believe her. Yeah. Um, I also think it's funny that Victoria agrees with us regarding Weld. Says Weld's a Boy Scout, Sveta. He's probably in my bottom ten people if, uh, to go to if I want deception and acting ability. <laughs> yeah, this continues to be the world's dumbest plan in all regards. Yeah. Also, Sveta's specifically like, oh no, but like he he's good at this because his uh, his Manton status makes him in, immune to lie detection. Nope. And 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 I, I mean, like, it's funny because I was I was even thinking about saying this last week. I was like, I would have thought that Manton that, that uh, well would be immune to lie detection. Um, and but then I thought about um, Black Forest and I was like, I bet that power is just as fucky on the line between biological and physical that it, yeah. it's it just doesn't care. <laughs> or it could be some three dimensional chess stuff where it's like everyone knows you're the lie detector. So we're going to tell egg that I was lying. you know, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. No, I don't think that's it. That's, that's too complicated. Yeah. Uh, that maybe <laughs> look, look, Sveta says she's fine with this whole 
stupid fucking plan. And I want to believe her, right? She says she doesn't need hope for the future in the, in the way that Tristan does. And she's fine in the moment as long as she has the people around her and care about her. And I want to believe that too. And I think that's because what she said there is true, right? She said there is like, as long as I have people around me, I'll be okay. Like I've never had a hopeful future. I, I think, I think that's true, but I think she does this very clever dodge in which that doesn't have that much to do with feeling hurt that Weld is doing this stuff right now. And I just can't, I just can't rec. I can't, I can't reconcile this as, as a reality that she's painting here. Like the defining trait of, Sveta in this book was in back and Glowworm. The defining characteristic was her reeling from these groups of case 53s that all hate her now. Right. Like her chapter in Glowworm was mostly about these people contacting her and just being shit to her and how much it hurt her. And granted, that was before breakthrough and it was before Victoria and it was before she found this group, this family and the support system. And so maybe when she says she doesn't need those people anymore because she has these people and those people that hate her don't bother anymore, that she's fine because she has, has these people. But nah, man, nah, I don't I don't believe it. I don't believe it. It reminds me of Tristan and like obviously still tears him apart that his mom isn't talking to him. Mm-hmm. And the K-53s were basically Sveta's family. Yeah. And the idea that like, oh, well, I have new friends now. It's like, no, nah, that's not how that works. Like you're, you're, yeah. I mean, I think like maybe eventually you can get over something like that, but this is also fresh. Sure. Um, sure. I, I, I agree with you there. I, I do think it's interesting because I was thinking about this a lot because I, I remember back in the early parts of this book, we classified Sveta as this person, this, this eternal optimist, this person that like looked towards the future and fervently believed tomorrow was going to be better than today. And I went back to it's arc two. It's the end of the arc where Victoria both like for the first time meets up with Sveta. And that's what basically she says. She says tomorrow, like things are going to get better. And, and she firmly believes that. And I just don't know if I buy this, this depiction of her as a person who like, like doesn't need hope in the way that Tristan need hope. And, and Tristan's hope, Tristan's definition of hope is different. His definition of hope is interaction with people and parties and that kind of things. But I just don't buy this idea that like, I never really had anything to look forward to anyway. So I don't need like hope or I don't need to feel hopeful about the future. It's like, I don't, I don't know. Sveta, I don't think so. And maybe my characterization of her was just inaccurate from the beginning, but I don't think so. Yeah. I, I, I think if you like, she's lived her whole life in this in in such a low state of just like struggle or her whole whole life that she can remember that maybe in this moment she legitimately believes like what do i have to complain about i have a body finally i got nothing to complain about it's all fantastic like i can even kind of relate to this as like being being like a kid and being like I can't complain. My life is great objectively. Mm-hmm. And the thing is like your, your mind, your brain, your emotions don't give a shit about objectively. They, they entirely give a shit about relatively and subjectively. <laughs> sure. Which, um, so like just because now she has a body, like takes, it takes you about like a week to acclimate to a, to a fantastic piece of good fortune like that. And then you're like, all right, but am I going to keep this? Is this going to keep <laughs> being good? Is this going right. to, and, and what am I going to do with this now? What does this imply? Uh, and so I, I kind of agree like, yeah, maybe that's been true for her whole, for her whole life because it's her whole life has been this 
this treading water and just having to be okay with with nothing that she wanted but that doesn't mean that that that's real satisfaction or sure, or, sure. or uh, i'm just i'm i'm agreeing with you definitely yeah so. no I, I i i get that yeah and i think i think that's an important distinction because i don't think it's that she's like knowingly lying to herself yeah. or lying to victoria i think she fervently wants to believe that's the truth um but i think she's more beaten up about this yeah. I, I just I, I have to believe that this is bothering her. I just don't I just don't see a Sveta in which this whole interaction would not bother her. Also, it would just be a little bit strange if this chapter was like everyone's doing really poorly, except Sveta. <laughs> she's doing great. Like, yep, no, I, think, I agree. I think I mean, I mean, Crystal does a similar thing where she's like, oh, right. no, my mom has my back, except she's not my mom. She's a weird flock member who doesn't yeah. doesn't understand or pay attention to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. OK. OK, Crystal. Right. We, we believe you. <laughs> Yeah. 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 So, yeah, Gregor. So, so, sorry, I, I just want to say, like, this is when the chapter starts to really dive into this concept of hope. Right. Um, Sveta says she doesn't really need it, but that Tristan absolutely does. But that it's more than just hope for himself, like because part of Tristan's strength comes from delivering hope to other people, people that he cares about, which, again, I think is another connection to Victoria. Right. I think that's something Victoria can relate to bringing hope to people. Um, but in this instance, you can't do that. And this is when Victoria offers leadership, right? It's like, I can't bring him the ability to bring hope to other people. What I can bring him is leadership. So I can solve that problem. Uh, and it's like, no, that's not enough, sadly. So yeah. I, I just wanted to draw attention. We were really, the rest of this chapter really dives into this concept of hope. And I wanted to, it's really starts here. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so so Gregor uh, comes over and he helps Tristan glue his bridges together, like we talked about. Shamrock and Gregor then tell Sveta that they've been rooting for her. <laughs> and Sveta takes this about as you would expect. Yeah. She, she After they leave, she says, like, under her breath, basically, you guys couldn't have said that, like, any time before now or talked to them or done anything productive. <laughs> <laughs> Does this sound like the something a person who's totally fine with all the Case 53 stuff would sound? <sighs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's 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 like it's like she she had this brave face on and then they just like smashed the brave face with the hammer right as she walks up um, because, yeah, it's hitting that nerve. Exactly. There, yeah, because. Yeah. I, yeah. And to, and to me, that's the intent of this moment. Right. Is, is to just we have this moment where she puts on this incredibly brave face um, and then is confronted with the nature of the nature of that disagreement, the, the whole case 53 thing again is she's confronted with it and she immediately like acts like pained and hurt by, by what they did or what they didn't do rather. And so it's like, it's obvious this stuff is still bothering her. Of course it is. Of course it is. Like, it's ridiculous to think it, it wouldn't still bother her. Um, but I think there's just evidence of that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I also like, didn't know how to feel about it because like at the one hand, I love Gregor and Shamrock. Like I love them. They're great characters. And when they did this, I was like, oh, that's really sweet. And Sveta was like, yeah, but they didn't like do anything. They just they just said that now. And I was like, yeah, good point. But also like, what's the expectation here? Like what, what would they have done? Yeah. So so I thought about this a little bit. And I was remembering last week we talked about how the case of theories remind me of like fandoms. Um, <laughs> or, or, or really like any any group. Like you can just you can just say any group of, of people yeah, will yeah. Let, let, like once once sort of a, a toxicity is allowed to take root within it within a culture a subculture a group of people whatever um 
there's just like kill it with fire and run. I, I don't I don't know like what and basically my, my point is like what should Gregor and Shamrock have done? Because if they were to come and say like you guys are being too hard on Sveta, you know what the response would have been like it, it would have been, oh, oh, you're on her side. Yeah, it, it would have been like Shamrock. You're not even a real K53. Yeah, Gregor, why are you a traitor? And, and you're you're, yeah. you're you're siding with Sveta. Like that, that. That's the psychology of it. Is Sveta is imagining that they would have stood up for her, and everyone would have been like, "Oh, you're right." But like, <laughs> no, like that's. I mean, we see we see an eggs mind exactly how this operates. Exactly how this toxicity operates. Mm-hmm. It would just mm-hmm. be, oh, so Gregor's a traitor too. Yeah, Th- yeah. That, that would be it. I mean, we said he already called him a traitor even without doing this. He's a True. traitor because he was with Faultline. Yeah. That, that, yeah. So I, I think you're totally right there. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It would have been nice for them to have said this to Sveta years ago. I mean, I don't know. There's lots of crazy shit going on. Swinging by Sveta and being like, hey, just so you know, rooting for you. Right. I mean, because it might mean, not have worked out. Right. It's, it's. I mean, it's even kind of condescending if you're just going to say we're rooting for you. But no, we're not going to say anything to the others. Mm-hmm. Um, that's which, which I think maybe they're even aware of. I mean, we, sure, we, we yeah. noticed that Gregor doesn't say anything. It's just Shamrock. I almost imagine Gregor being like, like doing the like cut off signal with his, with his hand. Yeah. Like, no, don't, don't yeah. say that to her. That's not going to help. Not, not a good time. Yeah. 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 Maybe. Yeah. So th- <laughs> speaking of Gregor, there's this moment where Victoria notices Gregor is getting uh, like a see-through plastic shirt and she goes, you rock your weird Gregor. I thought. I kind of resented that he was one of my hometown capes who hadn't shown up to Leviathan, but whatever. I wasn't worth holding on to hard feelings. And that's just hilarious to me because it's like, it's like Victoria, <laughs> you know, like I'm not holding on to these hard feelings, but it's the first thing I'm going to think about when I see you. <laughs> yeah, it, I think it's just good psychology of like, yeah, sure. we, we absolutely have biases and we, we like see them and acknowledge them. And then we're like, I don't want to have that anymore. But that doesn't mean yeah. you don't have it anymore. Sure, sure. Yeah, she still has it. I um, think it's a good I think it's a good like gesture. But um, yeah, she it's, clearly, a, it's a vi- yeah, it's a very good Victoriaism. Yeah, I, I, I really like it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. So they then see that Ophion and Nemean Titan are approaching with Fortuna following. Oh, I love the text here, Matt. The slim mountain in the background had eyes now, slivers of and ovals of gold. I could make out the wolf heads. And then, fuck you, Contessa. And I love that it doesn't even say who said that here. Yeah. Um, like, it, it doesn't have to. Obviously, we all know Sveta <laughs> said that. But I, I just I just love, I love that moment. Yeah, me too. So then she ret- retrieves um, uh, her gun, which I like how you capitalize gun in the text. I don't know if you did that on purpose, but like the gun has a name now and it's gun. And it's personified. I was going to name it Wilson, actually. Oh, OK, um, so she re- she retrieves Wilson from okay. some very admiring tinkers. Yeah, they were fucking with Wilson, man. Yeah. And she gets really mad at them. Um, but it seems like they helped fix it a little they, bit. They seem to have helped fix it. They're extremely uh, like adoring of it. It's kind of cute, actually. Uh, a little bit of levity in this in this uh, he- very heavy chapter. Yeah. Um, and then she she notes the undersiders arriving and notes Tattletail shows up uh, and then takes in the scene and then leaves immediately. So <laughs> look, the girl knows when she can be helpful on the ground in the field and when she can't. I respect that. She comes out. She knows she can't be any help on the field here. And she says, nope. And she and she barts or grandpa Simpson's right the fuck out the door. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, it did make me wonder what her power is, is like now. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that, there's so many there's so many open questions about this, right? Yeah. Like, what is that? What does that look like? What does that kind of thinker power look like? Stronger, but less uh, less like precise. Yeah. You know, what does that look like? Is it going to is it going to send her down rabbit holes, wrong rabbit holes even more? I don't know. Yeah, that's fun. It's fascinating. Yeah. So Tristan and Byron then experiment with their powers, exploring what happens if they switch while using the power. Mm-hmm. So Byron's power is like this freezing gas, and the swapping mechanics are more complicated than I can go into comfortably. But in general, there seems to be more like projectiles involved. Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's just fun because <laughs> you like it's a very logical, like you kind of see logically how they work through the process, right? Cause you see Tristan does his power and then he switches to Byron's power and then sees what that does. And then he switches in the middle of it to see what happens. And then they do it the other way around. And it's just very precise and logical the way they're testing this. Yeah. And you just kind of see it play out. But yeah, I mean, let's talk about this a bit. What does this mean? Tristan now makes ruins. Byron now makes a, an, a freezing ice cloud. Um, both seem to be kind of like a combination of the things they made before. Like ruins are like a combination of maybe the metal and um, and the rock, whereas this freezing ice cloud is like a combination of the water and the the death cloud that he had mm-hmm. at the at the very beginning. So I mean, what what does this what does this mean? Yeah, and, and he, like coal has always been a focus of his too. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's clearly remixing the same elements. I, I mean, I, I feel like I have a better handle on what Tristan's means kind of metaphorically. I don't know what I, Byron having like a freezing cloud, like it's it's a lot less, um, again, less versatile and like like utilitarian. Like you can't sweep stuff away with it. You can't um, kind of launch it into the air and then yeah. have Tristan replace it with his stuff. Like it, it doesn't, it, like a lot of the things we've seen them do synergistically throughout the story are just not options anymore. Yeah. And, um, and and what they do now and and help me if I'm if I say this wrong, but what, what they do now is when they do switch with their power active, it, it sort of like creates a, it just like shoots a projectile of either icy death or rubble. Yeah, it kind of seems like it. But even the icy death projectile shatters like really easily without seemingly doing anything. Yeah. So I think the cloud he, he Tristan makes a ruin it shifts to a cloud and it just falls yeah and just shatters and yeah it, it seems it does seem generally less synergistic yeah it, it's like a kind of more more simple and and straightforward and it's violence like I'm just thinking of how cool it was before when they would like one of them would like make the moat and the other would like punch it and it would make like a spike on their gauntlet and and it's like the it's almost like the power was there like trying to help them out and and now it's just kind of like yeah uh shooting stuff mainly i I say all this fully knowing that like in four days there could be an action scene where they use these powers synergistically and it's like holy shit i never thought of that That, before that's entirely possible is that i'm just (laughs) missing the synergy um yeah but my first impression is like well that just seems a lot less useful Sure. And, and, sure. and more deadly. Like it mentions like it almost hit some of the people who are nearby. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that stops it is like like almost like a panicked switch back to Tristan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it seems it seems a lot more risky in every possible way. Yeah. Yep. 
Um, so then Egg's horrifying godbirds come out and they face down <laughs> the me and Titan. It's funny because the text never actually says that's what it is, but we just yeah, that that's what it is. Well, I mean, sometimes like this, this is writing, right? Sometimes yeah. the, the ways in which you describe things like Victoria describing it as bird like yeah. is that's that's wild bow like. Yeah. Showing his hand a little bit yeah, like yeah. that's he's like, here's here's how what I want you to think. Um, yeah. So he doesn't need to spell it out like he doesn't need to have a person in the background say, I think those are eggs. Yeah. We we got it. Right. Yes. Um, they're huge. Like, yeah, some of them are like they're not as big as the Titans, but one of them is like as long as one of the Titans. Yeah. And and I, I love that, like, they're they're so dumb already that Nemean Titans like dumbifying power doesn't really do anything to them. And so Egg basically <laughs> holds the Titan at a standstill by himself, which is just fantastic. Yeah. What happens like I know like it's a it's basically a portal, right? So like but what like is Egg just off to the side, just chilling, like fully healed? I mean, maybe. Like my impression is that when these things come out of him, he probably just like is obliterated and then he reforms. Um God, you always go the worst possible route. That's that's terrifying. So where is he? What is he? Where does he exist? I mean, he's I think he's just like a splatter of egg until he kind of draws himself back together, maybe. Um, like I think the idea is that egg is probably extremely durable unless his like brain sack gets destroyed because that's kind of a, a general principle with these K-53s is that they, they actually do have a brain somewhere. Um, they've just protected it. So yeah, that'd be my guess. He just has like a big orange yolk, which is his brain. And as long as that's fine, then he's okay. Okay. Well, that's horrifying. Is that big brain, brainy yolk or yolky brain? Is it conscious? Is it like aware that it's sitting there waiting for the birds to come back? Oh, I don't know if they have to wait for him to come back. I think he might just heal and then who the hell knows what the birds do. <laughs> but they have to go back in. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. So many questions. There are a lot of questions. I mean, it's yeah. possible they just like disappear or something. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we I, won't. I feel like they go back in. Okay. They just I feel squeeze, like they've got to climb in. back in. Yeah. Well, we did see the littlest one kind of squeeze back in. So Yeah. I'm excited. <laughs> of course you are. So then we find out that Chris is lurking nearby and he starts needling Vicky um, figuratively, of course. Yeah, for now. Yeah. He's being extremely defeatist and he's talking about how no matter what they do, it will play into Fortuna's hands. Yeah. And I love this part where he says the cracks spread soon and Victoria responds, we're kind of hoping. And he hits back with, no, you're not. And and this is exactly, we, we kind of go back to this feeling of hopelessness, right? Like hope is something that Tristan needs and has ha- had none. Victoria wants hope real bad and she's struggling to get it. And Chris is here only offering hopelessness mm-hmm. and he revels in it. We learn a little bit later that Chris wants to be a Titan. It would like be the ultimate goal, like the ultimate end of his goal of monstrousness is being a Titan. And uh, our boy... Seems a little frustrated that he's not one, right? Yeah. Like, why Why could that be? He was near one of the cracks, wasn't he? He uh-huh. was near one of the cracks when it all ha- went down. Why, Chris? Why didn't you go Titan then? Could it, could it be that you have some connections to some people that you might not want to acknowledge? Yeah. Care too hate, much. But you can't, you can't throw off even as hard as you try. Yeah. Not willing to let go of those connections, even if part of you wants to. Mm-hmm character in conflict it's fantastic yeah yep this is i mean this is people people asked us like why why are you still why do you still have faith in chris and it seems like this like i think this is it it is 
this he is a character in conflict with himself. Yeah, I think my answer to that question was that he's he, Chris is a two year old <laughs> who um, an evil guy like downloaded his consciousness into, but he's not really that guy. He, sure. He's tremendously conflicted between diff, sort of different motivations and different versions of, of himself and who he could yeah. be and who he wants to be. And and like um, generously, he's an adolescent who's still trying to figure out who he is. And that's that's how he appears. That's how he manifests. That's how he behaves. Yeah. Um, so we just are hoping that he decides to be the guy we want him to be and not the guy that he wants to be. Yeah. And, and for all his protesting, like he keeps coming back to breakthrough he keeps hanging around them why is he here right now yeah what why is he next to victoria talking to victoria yeah absolutely because he's connected to these people and he can't stop himself yeah so speaking of of you know his relationship to them in in what is almost a conversational non sequitur he mentions that he could probably give all the k53s new bodies was what he knows now yeah which at first comes off as just like something specifically to to piss off sveta like just designed to upset her as much as possible. And I think that it is at first, but then he clarifies it, right? He goes on to say, it's not that I always could have fixed you and chose not to. It's just something I've learned recently. Now that we've, we've done the scans of the Titans, we understand the underworkings a little bit more. And now I think that with this new knowledge I have, I could make all those people bodies. It's almost as if like this guy who is convinced about hopelessness is like subtly offering Sveta and the case 53s hope. Yeah, he can't help himself. Like he he's literally come here to just be a, a Debbie Downer and then he ends up like you said in kind of almost inadvertently giving them hope. And this, it leads to this great exchange where like they they kind of keep doing the thing where they're just kind of needling him back. And he says, "You think you're getting one over on me. You get these quips." And then Sveta interrupts. They're very satisfying, like when Kinsey tells you <laughs> off and you don't have a reply. You get this look on your face like the mask slips. And then, unfortunately, you put it back on. Jessica had faith in you, you know. I just love yeah. that. That's that's such a such a great such a great character moment between these two people. It's so good. It's so good. And and this is the, this is another reason why. This is why I believe in in Chris and I I don't want to give up on Chris yet because like he's trying so hard to be nasty. He's trying so hard to push everyone away around him, but he keeps slipping. We keep seeing that mask slip just a little bit. And yeah, like, like Sveta says, he unfortunately puts it back on, but the hope is that maybe one time he finally won't. Um, and, and Chris, like the funny thing is, I think Chris would hear what we're saying about him right now. And, and, say we're absurd right he and he kind of does right he says the same thing to victoria he says you all think this means more than it does yeah and he's right we probably are thinking this means more than it does but victoria's response to that is it still means something Mm -hmm. it still means something and as long as there's that little bit of something there i'm gonna hold on to it i like this guy he's a little asshole of a kid but i want him not to be a monster and I'm going to hold on to that hope for as long as I think it's there. And I think every time we see him, every time we interact with him, I leave those interactions seeing that little something and I'm going to hold on to it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of something smart to say about the nature of hope and just like all maybe all you need is is a little something. You, you don't need to be torn in half with conflict. You just need to have that one little niggling voice that refuses to 
to to shut up and that can be enough to kind of pull you into doing the right thing even if most of you wants to do the wrong thing sure yeah yeah it's really interesting so um i guess chris does get the last laugh in because the cracks begin to grow um right when he says uh many of them threw fortuna in a way that kind of seems intended by her yeah and 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 we end this like chapter on hope right or the lack of yeah. like the, the final lines of this chapter is i hoped he was lying i hoped it was he was fucking with us i hoped we were ready and then the last line is hopes extinguished so like we're we're, we're bouncing back and forth with this idea of hope and this idea like we just talked about how we have hope in chris we just talked about how there's there's hope for the case 53s but but how much hopelessness is surrounded by this and i think like this idea of hope, I think we're doing something very specific with this. And like, I love the Tolkienian kind of outlook on hope, right? Um, Tolkien kind of said that, that true heroism is what you do when all hope is lost, when there is literally no hope, like there's no more hope. What do you do? Like, will you keep fighting? You keep fighting anyway. And that I mean, I think that's what we're going to see here. I think like like how do you react when all hope is lost? The people that as these cracks spread, the people that are going to keep it together, that are not going to turn into Titans are people that despite it being hopeless, still fight. Yeah, that makes sense. It's sort of the only thing you can do in the face of Contessa, right? Like that, mm-hmm. that's almost the that's almost what they talked about, like this idea where uh, Chris Chris says um, whatever you do is going to play into her hands and either Vicky or Sveta is like, well, yeah, if we, if we behave as though that's true, then we, then we do lose. But if we behave as though it's not true and it happens to not be true, that's the only way we can win. So the only option is to behave as though that's not true and to, you know, have hope basically. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I like it cause it's, it's taking this sort of um, emotional concept of hope and wrapping it in a fun sort of science fiction wrapper, which is my favorite thing. <laughs> sure sure all right so um next chapter 19.b gilpatrick interlude yes so gilpatrick meticulously checks through rain's old house like a detective ruminating on the lives of the people who lived here he seems to take it all in with a kind of somber acceptance though he's struck by a framed photo that rain's cousin Allie kept prominently in her room of a swollen and beating face he later asks rain about it and rain has no idea what it is who it is uh, even then, Gilpatrick kind of demands that Rain at least try to guess. <laughs> and Rain guesses, but then he concludes that his guess must be wrong, leaving Gilpatrick with no answers. And and it just drives the guy crazy. I think it's just fascinating how this guy ticks. Yeah, I, I think this is such a wonderful way to characterize this person. And I love it so much. Like, this is a house that uh, Wildbow makes it clear that this house has been empty for a very long time. Like, there's this thin layer of dust on everything, but he still has to check it check everything he checks under the beds he checks everywhere it's like a tick for him um and and i think the scene also does a great job of just reminding us how fucking terrible the fallen are we get to see um like this uh spare the child sign above uh like a a beating instrument i think it's like a leather a paddle i thought yeah yeah, paddle yeah yeah it's a paddle you're right um we see so like it's 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 calling back the bible verse that's used to justify 
uh, striking your children, uh, which is awful. Um, and, and then that picture and that picture is the most interesting part, right? Because it, it needles at him. It really does. And I think what he says, like the kind of the, the overarching theme of this chapter is Gilpatrick is a person that that is aware of the, the dark things in the corners, right? In the corners of everything, there's this darkness. And the reason this bothers him so much is because it's not in the dark corner. It's out in the open. It's on the bureau. It's right there. And he can't understand that. It's like, it's almost like it, it's a, it's something that doesn't line up with his worldview and he needs to know why it's there. Yeah. And he's just staring at it <laughs> and, and he's aware that he's being weird, Yeah, but it, it like clearly deeply, deeply bothers him. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I love I love his interaction with Rain here, too. It's really, really interesting because, like, we're going to see throughout this thing is Gilpatrick is a guy that kind of grows to respect this kid. Um, I mean, I think there's this this overarching level of pity as he walks through this house and sees how terrible these people are and knows that this is a place where Rain lived. Um, and, and then but but there's a level of respect here as he sees him as this person that has just like kind of dealt with it as as Aaron said right the deal with it guy we're getting mm-hmm. to see rain from another person's perspective again and we're seeing him as the deal with it guy because he's talking to him about this photo and 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 rain says uh like the one way you deal with this is to accept it without flinching or by doing the opposite of flinching and pretending it doesn't bother you and that's what he says about that's what rain says about someone else rain would never say that about himself but then we see Rain talks through all the shitty stuff that's happened with Allie and and Gilpatrick notes that Rain said it all without flinching like it didn't bother him. So like he's 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 dealt with it like that. Yeah. That's this is him dealing with it. And I don't think Rain would ever give himself that credit. But through Gilpatrick, we see that. Yeah, that's fascinating that that parallelism there where he, he has he has practiced just kind of shouldering all of the all of the darkness in all the corners for so long that he he does just do it without letting him bother without letting it bother him mm-hmm. um it, it kind of reminds me of another favorite line from this chapter where the um Gilpatrick asks like how do they how do they square the fallen doctrine with like the actual bible and rain's like they just do <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, right like it, like there's no I don't know what you want from me, man. Like that yeah. it's not, you're not going to get like an answer that's satisfying. And, and, and he's, and he has it rain himself has long given up trying to like answer these questions. It's, yeah. it's just, he just has to accept it and soldier on. And Gilpatrick is not that person, right? Yeah. He's a person that's still trying to find the answers to all the questions. Like there is a dark corner to all this and he wants to shine a light on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he, he has difficulty understanding it. He has difficulty squaring this concept of like, he's seen it. He's seen all the terrible things. He's seen the cage people. He's seen his, his Cape friend that, that was tossed into a barrel. Um, he's seen all this terribleness and he just can't square it. Like, like why, why is, why is this like this? Yeah, I mean, so like Gilpatrick, he's he's this kind of like internally messed up person. And, yeah, and, totally. And, and and like I think he's he's aware of it. He yeah, oh, like yeah. like he himself thinks of this house clearing ritual that he's going through as being an an anxious habit. It's it's something that he does even to his own home if he hasn't right. been home in a while. Which like that's 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 a bit much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. then and then this thought of like like the thought of, of doing like a house check just kind of flows organically into this memory of the cage people, which, yeah. which are these like tinker built cages containing victims and then like shattering their limbs in the process oh of moving them around. It's just, it's just awful. It's, yeah. Just awful. It's really great parahumans horror stuff. And yeah. And then that 
segues into this memory of this cape lucky break who was like this kid who he kind of tried to help and the kid ended up tortured to death in a barrel and um there's there's like you can tell from the way this is written that these are just this is a flow of thoughts like the reason i'm checking the dark corners of this house is because this is the shit that's out there right Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I just don't I just don't know. Like and he's looking at Rain as this person who like knows it's out there, sees it, has sat in those dark corners and is just like, eh. yeah. <laughs> it's just like got to do what you got to do. It doesn't make sense. You're just going to have to deal with it. And he has trouble with that. And I think he respects Rain for his ability to do that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think so. And yeah, so I mean, I I think like, so there's a lot like he pities him for the stuff he's had to go through, but he respects him as the person who's who's dealt with this stuff and come out the other side of it. Um, He compares him to to Lucky Break a lot. Um, I think we're going to get a specific example of that in a bit. But I I, I just it's just it's their interaction is fascinating to me. And and what more I want to see out of this interlude is the two of them interacting with each other. What what he learns through this experience i can't wait to see me too that's gonna be awesome so uh, we spend a little bit of time getting acquainted or perhaps reacquainted with uh, marshall and and gaiman um two specific of these pr uh prt these uh patrol block folks Mm -hmm. um there's a few others there who don't get so much characterization uh gaiman is especially prickish as rain does his best to brief to to, uh, brief everyone on the dream room um and Marshall is a badass. Yeah, we learn uh, Gaiman is the anti-parahuman person a little bit yeah. after this, I think. And he's pushing back. He's not thrilled. And Marshall is not like terribly thrilled about this whole thing, too. Like she's she's not near as as prickish as Gaiman is, but she's kind of pushing back on Rain's stuff, too. And, and Gil, the entire time, Gilpatrick's like totally got Rain's back. Um, and I think I think it's important that we kind of to help establish Gilpatrick as this kind, caring guy who genuinely wants to help and is on Rain's side. It's important to to contrast with pe- him with people. And I think Gaiman is like the perfect person to, to do that. You draw this character that's just this asshole, hates parahumans, doesn't want to be here, um, not happy about any of this stuff. But uh, but now we see Gilpatrick as compared to him. Yeah. And, and we also see I mean, I, I thought it was kind of great how how in anyone would notice that Gaiman is being rude and rain is like it's debatable whether he even notices and if he does notice he's just not reacting at all to it he just fucking deals with it man yeah, he's, he's just, just like, like whatever just soldiers on yeah just dealing with it yeah I, I, this is yeah sorry go ahead no, I, was, I was just gonna say like he's this is like the shit he's had to put up with in his life this is just nothing so yeah yeah, yeah. This is also a good time to remind ourselves that two chapters ago, we learned that there were some body snatchers that were going to infiltrate the dream uh, that were da- We know that they were down there. That's what Egg got told at the very end of his interlude. So immediately we're kind of like, which one of these fuckers? Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, the thing that I think it does smart is that it, it trots out Gaiman and drops him here as this asshole and we're like immediately like paying attention to him because we're like I bet it's this fucker Mm -hmm. it's definitely this guy and and we should note that Cox and and Valentine the two that eventually are revealed to be our body snatchers uh, are characterized in this scene a little bit like they they both get speaking lines we draw attention to them very subtly but because they're not specifically pushing back on rain our attention is not drawn to them. Our attention is drawn 
to Gaiman. Mm-hmm. And so we're paying attention to him a little bit more. And therefore, Wild Bill's kind of like showing his hand, but just doing a little misdirect. Yeah. And it's cool. Yeah. I, I like, I mean, it, it does feel like a card trick, right? Like he's, yeah. is this your card? Nope. It's over here, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yep. Um, I, I just, I love this interaction uh, where Gilpatrick, like you, like you said, he's trying to be supportive. It says Gilpatrick put a hand on the boy's shoulder. We're on your side. We're with you in this. Rain barely seemed to take in the feedback where LB had reacted so strongly to every praise and condemnation brimming with sensitivity and reception. Victoria, by another stark contrast, had barely seemed to notice things that made or broke other people's moods for the day, but one innocuous cue could see her retreating to her office. <laughs> like the thing, the thing that stood out to me about this is like, um, um, Gilpatrick is, is such a complex, cool, multidimensional character because he's got this kind of almost traumatized anxiousness about him that, that kind of compels him to check out the dark corners. But the way that this manifests is that he's, he's take, he, he's trying to take care of these people, right? Like he yeah, had LB, yeah. uh, you know, lucky break. He had Victoria and now he's sort of extending this terrain. And this is like why he's in the position he's in is he's, he kind of tunes into these people and tries to, tries to see how they tick. And then he tries to help them. And it, it, like, this is such a great kind of, look into into victoria it's really clear that this guy had a really strong sense of her and how to help her um, oh hell yeah i mean that is that is vintage victoria right yeah. like that that's she it, one one innocuous cue could sent, see her retreating to her office that's perfect exactly that's yeah. what happens to victoria um i i think it's really interesting first of all i love that he calls him lb because that's just like a perfect patrol block thing that you would hyphen like you would shorten his name right yeah. um but let's the the ways in which LB is specifically contrasted to Rain here is like is really interesting because Lucky Break ended up dead and Rain is a survivor. Um, and and I think I think that's the one thing that's that's where I mean where I I say like I think there's some respect being being drawn up from Gilpatrick for this kid, um, because he is a survivor. He's gone through all this terrible stuff. He's he's been in the worst dark corner you could imagine, and he's come out of it and. And he's still he's still going on and he's not letting this stuff bothering him, bother him. And he's trucking forward and he's trying his best and he's leading this group. And there's some respect there for sure. And mm-hmm. and it's respect. It's like this combination of respect and, and, and pity that you're right. Makes Gilpatrick like want to take care of this guy. He wants he wants to 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 keep him out of those dark corners. Mm-hmm. Yep. Even as they're about to go into one. <laughs> Yeah, it just it just makes him overall a fleshed out character who we immediately just love. Yeah. Um, all right. Cool. Um, so then they are they enter the dream. They are first subjected to Love Lost Dream, a vignette that we haven't seen yet, where Everlyn rages at Love Lost, telling her that she would rather have her mom be a drunk than a police detective, um, and that she's aware of the toll that the job took on her mom. Mm-hmm. Um, one new element that stands out to me particular here is that love lost tells her daughter i get it now just before her daughter is killed in the dream again yeah yeah so there aren't many things that i enjoy in this book more than this ongoing saga of love lost matt i mm-hmm. I, I don't know what i don't know what it is about this character and the way in which her story is told but just the the the, the little vignettes we've seen of her of her through the dream room I just love this character and I love this, this tragedy that we see in this character and uh, this, this, this bit, this latest bit of it 
it's just more of the same. I just love all of this. I mean, it's devastating. It breaks my heart, but I just, I love it. It's such good storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we've seen her, we've seen her really develop actually in, yeah. in little, yeah. little tiny driblets of story um, over time. And here at this point, I think she's come kind of to a, a full acceptance of, of things that she was reluctant to accept, uh, you know, earlier in the story, especially when she was being an awful villain. But um, yeah. Yeah. And it, it's it's interesting. It feels balanced to me. Like one of the one of the things we, I've, I've talked to you about this before, but I feel like sometimes like this too much of the story goes by where we don't deal with Chris. So a lot of times like he's one of the he seems like he's one of the core breakthrough characters. I always want more Chris. I want more of him in the story. Um, but for Love Lost, it always feels to me like she's in it just the perfect amount. Like she just kind of comes and slips back into the story. We're learning a little bit about more her and then it goes a different direction Mm -hmm. and then it'll eventually loop back to her in this very natural kind of way. And then we'll go off and do something else. And it's always felt like just like, it always felt like the sweet spot. We're getting just enough of this character. I feel. Yeah. Yeah. I I think you're right. I think you're right. (laughs) And I I agree with you about always wanting more Chris as well. Uh, okay, but th- there are some specific things that I wanted to highlight in this dream because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. Um, first, as Gilpatrick is getting ready for the dream, he's kind of going through his mind and thinking about capes and thinking about the stuff in the in those dark corners. And, and one of the says one of the things he references is wizard parahumans, like this wizard type of parahuman. And then we go into the dream and we see this scene, a scene that we had never seen before. And at the start of the stream, Everly is talking to her mom about what she would do if she has powers. And Ever says, I'd be all wizardy, I think, even if I didn't have wizardy powers. Now, we know that Ever is like all into magic and sorcery and fantasy. So like this is not an abnormal thing for her to say. Like it's not like out of the out of the ordinary for her to use a word like wizardy. But whenever you have this word repeated twice so close together, it gets my attention. And and therefore... My brain starts turning and my hypothesis around this whole thing is now that like Gilpatrick and possibly all the humans presence in this dream is influencing it in certain ways. Um, Maybe not the same way in which Colt's presence influence it, but perhaps Gil like going to sleep and thinking right before he goes to sleep about wizardy capes like was processed as a command by the shard computer or whatever, and just said, wizardy, okay, uh, let's go to my files and find memory that has the word wizardy in it, and we'll play that one. Um, it's just, it, it, like, I, I don't know if that's true, but it seems like that's a very big possibility. I I, I love that. I mean, um, I think I think the word wizard doesn't appear in this book that many times. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so the co-occurrence of it in that way, I think is, is certainly suggestive. And, and yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely is consistent with all the rules that we've been led to accept about the way the dream room kind of integrates information yeah. from the different people. And, um, I, there's one element we didn't talk about either, which is that at one point love lost, like it's, it's clearly modern day love lost thoughts filtering through to what dream love lost is saying because yeah. Everlyn doesn't respond to it. Um, yeah, she says she said I'd claw into their stomachs, feel their guts hot between my fingers and drag the contents out of the wound because you don't get powers without something bad happening to you. And I don't think there are many things that could push me that far without me wanting revenge of some sort. And Gilpatrick says in that moment that her the words he's hearing don't line up with her lips, mm-hmm. which is exactly what you're saying is that this is not something she in in this memory, this dream memory. This is not something that she actually said to ever, mm-hmm. um, but 
it is something she's saying now. And where is that coming from? Right. Is that the influence of one of the other humans doing that? Is that just Colt's influence on the dream? What is that coming from? Because that's new. I don't think we've seen it. No. We've seen the we've seen the dreams shift and change over time. We haven't we haven't seen that kind of direct influence to where other people can hear her thoughts. Yeah. One one interesting thing is is this is the first time we've been in here since Cradle was dead. Yeah. So he's not around warping everything because I if I recall he he was he was actually kind of planting seeds and pushing things along certain tracks using his lucid dreaming skills. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, so just maybe that, that's just I mean, there's a ton of different elements in play here that could make it that, that could be the explanation, right? Yeah, but I think you're right. I mean, this the end of this dream is almost this moment of reconciliation where she says to her good daughter before she dies, "I get it now. I understand mm-hmm. the things I just witnessed. The dream I just witnessed." Um, I understand. And, yeah. and, and so like we start kind of putting all these hypotheses together. If, if, if other people are influencing this dream, if the reason why this particular dream, this particular memory happened today is because of the inadvertent influence of other people, then Gilpatrick and the others might have helped love loss get to a point of reconciliation or a point, at least a point of understanding of, of finally understanding what his her daughter meant Mm -hmm. and like obviously that's not going to bring her daughter back that's not going to assuage her guilt for what happened but it is a moment where at least you get it now at least you can look back and say i get it i i I get what you i get it i i I understand right um and i think that's so important sure well because i remember distinctly we've talked about this before the idea that the the kind of the nightmarishness of the of the dream room if you will is is that it it like tortures you with these memories night after night after night and, yeah. and, and keeps them fresh and reminds you of why you hate and ne- never lets you get over the thing. Um, I think I think memory is a huge theme of this story that I haven't I don't know why that hadn't clicked for me until today, basically. But I was like, this story does so much with memory and, and the yeah. dream room is one of the main places where it does that because you know, we talked about this idea recently that Victoria wants to, or she, she might say yes if someone offered to, to take away her memories. Yeah. And here we have a situation where they're being subjected to these memories night after night after night. And the thing is that prior to now, love loss has always been subjected to them in a way that just made her r- reminded her of, of what she's lost and, and, and use that to, to reinforce her hate and her violent tendencies. And finally, this is the first time that it's sort of being used in what you could almost call a therapeutic way where it's like, sure, look at this and reprocess this and maybe come out of this feeling a little bit more at peace than you did going into it. Yeah, I totally, totally. It, it kind of reminds me of that Ted Chang short story we read about, you know, how memory could be useful, but also distorting. Um, mm-hmm. and, and just the complicated nature of that, because yeah. it's not, it, it's, it's, it's memory it is naturalized memory, but also like shard based memory. Right. So it's like, it's like an alien computer system recalling something, um, which Mm -hmm. is different. I think different from just normal recall, which we have a lot of, we have a lot of that in the story. We have Chris, we have Ashley who both have these memories that were basically stored and put back into them. We have Victoria who, who has these traumatic memories, but then she also has memory blocks. Yeah. Um, we have Sveta who, whose whole, whose whole life was erased uh, I mean, I think the only member of Breakthrough who hasn't had his memory completely fucked up would be um, Capricorn in general. 
Yeah, but I, I wonder if we could, I mean, it's not memory specifically, but I wonder if we could, I don't know. I feel like we could explore that. I, I don't, I don't want to do it right now because it would just be me sitting here silent thinking for five minutes. Yeah. But I, mean, I wonder I mean, if we could explore that. Kinsey has her, um, her, her holograms, yeah. which are, which yeah. are, which are actually reconstructions. They're not actually memories. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a huge, yeah. So we'll, we'll, just now that we've, now that we've identified this, I think it'll be fun to maybe carry forward with us. Yes. So the people appear in the dream room. Um, Gilpatrick immediately notices that Valentine doesn't look right. Uh, they're all jumbled up and striped, almost like uh, Matryoshka. <laughs> and then Cox is a little girl. Well, that's weird. Probably nothing to read into that at all. Yeah, I hope I hope whoever Cox was is is okay somewhere. Nope. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. So this is obviously Bijou and Matryoshka, right? These are our Probably, K fifty three yeah. infiltrators. I don't think I don't think there's a lot of doubt to be left here. Um, and, and but like looking back and reading this again after you like it, it, the book makes it pretty definitively clear that that's the case. It's really funny almost yeah. because they both look really strange and everyone's like, Cox, what the hell? And he's just not able to come up with a lie quickly enough. He's just like, uh, and then Valentine Matryoshka maybe is a little bit quicker thinking and says, I'm biracial, uh, which gives Cox just enough time to come up with his. Uh, I was thinking about my niece. Which yeah. is like, which is like, I think that only works as an excuse because everyone is really, really distracted. Yeah. Because I don't think that's how it works at all. Like, it's it's how you see yourself. Yeah. Not like, you know, just like, I was thinking about the cookie monster. Right. So I turned into the cookie yeah. monster. Well, see, and also we, we know that because we've seen this happen. Um, but they they might just be like, oh, okay, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Rain <clears throat> is the only one that definitively knows it out of this group of people. Yeah. Um, and he's got a lot going on. Right. So, and yeah, like, what so. are you like? There's, there's priorities, right? They'll, they'll deal sure. with this later. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I love, uh, Marshall held an automatic rifle on top of body armor. She wore a smirk <laughs> across her face. So, uh, Marshall is coiled sniper confirmed. Um, yeah, I don't know about that, Matt. <laughs> that would be funny though. She, she definitely does recite the rifleman's creed from full metal jacket, like constantly though. Yeah. Right? I'm sure that was happening. That that was her meditation actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, I think definitely her and Victoria should like get together and, and talk about how much they love their guns. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. Uh, Gaiman on the other hand has no gun. Oh, bummer. <laughs> um, Marshall almost gives him her second gun, which of course <laughs> she brought in, um, uh, but instead gives it to Love Lost, uh, new favorite character. <laughs> yeah, one dream sequence, and he and she can already tell that Love Lost is like worth twelve gamins. Yeah, uh, it's fantastic. Uh, we also, I think this this moment where Rain like realizes that it, like a giant rage shard monster might not be the best thing to go up against with guns. It's like, oh yeah, I didn't think about that. Because what if, what if it makes you hate each other? Yeah. And then you shoot each other. So everyone's just like, okay, I guess we just got to empty our clips into this thing before we even move. Um, so uh, what are we naming this thing? Oh, I don't know. Um, what It was Mr. Happy was the other one, right? No, Mr. Hugs. Mr. Hugs. Right? Yeah, well, yeah. we don't have Chicken Little here, so I don't know how we can possibly come up with a name. Yeah, they should have just um, brought Chicken Little in. Um, a- Anger Wolf. No. No? Okay. It would be something cooler than that. Oh, we'll think about it. Okay. Maybe that's a discussion question. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely, <laughs> definitely it. 
So Gilpatrick chooses to frame uh, this whole event as a crash course in being parahuman, which uh, I think he's probably going to end up being more right than he knows. For sure. I, I, I think like outside of the fact that he's about to become a parahuman, most likely, I think there's just this really like we, we framed Gil as this guy who like. Like just um, doesn't quite. He, he knows he's seen the darkness in the corners of these rooms and he's just had he's just constantly had trouble processing it. Right. He's just constantly like like how, how do you deal with it? How do you survive it? How, how like how do you how do you live a normal life with this? And then he's forced to go through this thing. And when Breakthrough and the Undersiders went through the dream room, they learned a lot about each other. And like this was a moment like of where the walls finally came down, like where I think the best example of that is Tattletale and Victoria kind of seeing each other or at the very least Victoria sees Tattletale for maybe the first time. Mm-hmm. And so we have Gil, this guy who's always kind of appreciated parahumans and he's wanted to help them and protect them. And he's but he's 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 seen the dark corner, but he's never really had to like like it's just different. Right. It's different for parahumans. Yeah. And now he's gone through that and he's seen not only the darkness, but what's on the other side of the darkness, which is you're expected to now fight this thing. Mm-hmm. And he gets it. And the first thing he does after he gets it is he looks at love lost and he says, my condolences. Like, I'm sorry what you went through. I'm sorry what you had to go through. And I, I don't know. I just think that's a really powerful moment. That moment where like he's seen all this. He's gotten this crash course in parahumans. He's seen how terrible it is. And he looks at Love Lost, this villain who's killed people, um, who's done terrible, terrible things. And he just says, hey, I'm sorry. That sucks. That sucks that you had to go through that. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I agree that that was a powerful and possibly even important moment. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think people in the Discord were saying, like, is that the first time anybody has ever said that to love lost. Oh, it might be. And I was, Surely rain said something. I mean, the thing is, I don't know if he would have said it, it, it like that way because sure. Cause, cause he's responsible for it basically. So him saying my condolences is a bit, yeah, he definitely wouldn't say my condolences. Right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I mean just like the idea of just like a kind of very simple human connection offered out to her in this way seems important yeah. to me. And then, of course, you've got people like Gaiman who it doesn't matter, like their mm-hmm. eyes were closed. Even even witnessing the dream is probably not enough to to get them to understand. Yeah. Well, um, I have a feeling something's about to get them to understand. Yeah. Maybe if you just uh, you know, trigger. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I like when one of the rookies points out that Cox was like off before they entered the room, um, like like the, the name tag didn't look right. And Gilpatrick's like, that's the kind of thing you mentioned sooner. <laughs> Yeah, and it's like going on in the middle of gunfire and counting down and like like it's being broken up where he can only barely hear it. And like it's like I just thought it was a typo. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's it's a really great moment. Like it, it really helps sell the oh, these are definitely the 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 body snatchers yeah. type of moment. Also, I mean, maybe it's the maybe it's the SCP lover in me, but um, the like I just love the stories from the perspective of the grunts in these hell worlds where they absolutely know that if one letter is off on a name tag, that's a huge red flag. And then, you know, it's an emergency basically. Sure. Um, it's just, it's just so good. So after the team empties their weapons into love Lost's agent, they all run, uh, but all the non parahumans are felled by the thing's psychic type attack. 
Yeah, and it's it's kind of weird how Cox and Valentine are somehow just immune to the attack that only works on non-pair humans. So weird. I, weird I honestly how- wonder how long they're going to pretend, you know? Yeah, it's like... I mean, because the text notices that, we assume that that Gilpatrick does as well, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so he's definitely going to have some questions for these two. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I feel, <laughs> I feel like the cat's out of the bag, but but they have no choice but to move forward with the mission, right? Yeah. Sure. Sure. So the uh, yeah, the power digs into Gilpatrick more than just an emotion power, but a power that uses emotions, connects them together, understands triggers. He remembers that Colt was added to the cluster late. When in proximity to love lost, as it happens. <laughs> yeah. Which is like, a nice oops. little connection. Yeah. Oops. Not something I put together, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, it's a tie into the last chapter. I think it's like almost as if the shard weaponizes this this concept of hopelessness. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and he triggers and presumably they all trigger. I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure on this. Like, I'm pr- I'm pretty sure the way this is written, they're triggering, but I'm not like 100 percent sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm not, I, I, I said earlier to you, I'm 90 percent sure. So sure, sure. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I mean, like, pretty I, sure. Like, uh, then he saw nothing except abstract images, a glimpse of a world beyond stars, and the wells of power he might not live to tap into. Um, and so, like, it, it, I, one read is that he's just getting a glimpse at those wells of power. He's not actually going to have access to them. He's just getting, like, he's getting the trigger vision because. I think the argument is he's getting a trigger vision because it seems that the shard is like part of how triggering works generally, like part of the system. Um, but it seems like he's going to trigger. Right. Right. I, I think so. I mean, I, I have for a long time actually thought that it would be really interesting, a really interesting story choice if we saw an anti parahuman uh, trigger. Mm-hmm. And I think we may have even talked about the potential of Gary triggering and like just wouldn't that be an interesting story idea you have yeah. this person who now has to struggle with this and and what impact does it have on on their thinking and and their relationships and and it, it's the kind of idea where i was like man i just that that would just go so well in this story sure and we established gaiman as a pretty you know bold anti human and i think that if he doesn't trigger here i will be surprised put it that way yeah, I mean, yeah, I think we said when it was Gary, I think my response was that would that, that would be like too on the nose, like the leader of the anti parahuman movement turning to a parahuman. That's like, it's like 1999 X-Men where they <laughs> turn that guy into a mutant. Remember? I do. It's like it's just it's like it, it seems was, like too on the nose. It was great. What do you mean? No, that's a bad movie. <laughs> Watch that movie again. It's a bad movie. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I think I think like creating this character, establishing this character as, as part of that anti-parahuman squad and then putting him through this does absolutely seem like something Wildwood would want to explore. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 I tend to agree with you. I think every one, I mean, all these people have the potential to trigger and they're all like being faced with the trigger shard right. <laughs> almost. Um, so it certainly makes sense. Um, I, I mean, the, the interesting part is what's this going to look like? Like they're in, they're in the shard, world dream room thing right like they're they're in the computer almost what does computer. that look they're, like they won't have their powers in here i'm pretty sure i mean they that, shouldn't that would be a fun twist if they somehow did i mean yeah <laughs> w- w- whatever right the rules the rules are <laughs> the, the rules are whatever so right but right. but yeah i mean um i i mean i think that like the saddest the saddest thing would be like some of them don't make it out and we never get to see what their power is but yeah well i mean 
I feel like I feel like a good I mean, the, the end of this chapter is like he wouldn't live to see it. So it's like there's there's a strong indication that some of these could be broken triggers. Right. And what does that do? Like and and as this is this is not this is too early in our timeline for this to be the bomb explosion. And it's too yeah. early in our timeline. So therefore, it's too early in our timeline for this to be the crack spreading. Right. So this is not going to be like a, a cascading event that affects the outside world. Because Cor- we would have seen it. Right. Yes. Yes. Pretty sure that pr- pretty sure that pretty sure that like all of the the fighting with the the, the, the whole um the, the whole uh, ground invasion is after this. Yes. Or, or like yes. or like sort of contemporary with this. But this is toward the beginning of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I, I can't wait to see what it is. I, I like I like the idea of Gaiman being a cape. I like the idea of Gilpatrick um, being a cape and seeing how that interacts with with rain. Maybe it helps him finally find a way to deal with those dark corners. Yeah. Um, but it's rough <laughs> hopelessness. Or he's going to get a, again. He's going to get a power that makes the dark corners like way more uh, horrible. Oh God, everything's a dark corner. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, the power is not going to help him. <laughs> no, certainly not. Certainly yeah. not. Um, okay. Um, I love that interlude. I love Gilpatrick. I kind of always loved Gilpatrick, but it was great, um, being in his it's head. Just, yeah. It's just great. Like getting a, a handle on this guy who just seems like this, just this genuinely decent person yeah. who's just struggling. Like he's, he's a perfect stand in for just humanity almost like like he's just this guy who has seen all this terrible shit and is struggling to understand it and struggling to understand the people that are forced to go through it um and wants to help them as much as he can yeah i mean he's already a hero like yeah like he like like he is um so it's fitting and i hope he gets to do more heroism and not turn into a horrible shard monster me too speaking of horrible shard monsters (laughs) the discussion question from last week was Who's your favorite K-53 that is not Sveta? Are you calling them horrible shard monsters? No, that wasn't what I meant. That's terrible. I'm sorry to any K-53s that are listening. That was not <laughs> what I intended. Um, all right. Uh, Killer Kino and Isaac G1 both said Casey Forks, the mold-based broken trigger who was included as a K-53 post-gold morning. Uh, first of all, that last part is wild that the irregular uh, community is so insular that they reject someone like Sveta for making a high pressure decision they disagree with. But they decide to include someone who hasn't really experienced any of their hardships simply because they are transformed. Then we uh, have to take a look at how Casey describes their power. I grew mold on my dad's body and I could make him move. I grew mold on his brain and I got him to think. And with his thinking, I finally got the generator and the router and the phones working. It helped that I grew mold on the pieces and parts. Now I am making my sister type. Um, like it, it, and, then, and then they go on to say, at first glance, it seems like this is just control over bodies, but it seems to go much farther. Uh, Casey mentions becoming a god of death, and that seems way more accurate. The, da- the dad even thinks after death. Um, basically, this is like a whole new level of restoring access to like a person after they're dead, um, r- forming a network and having access to their knowledge and skills even after yeah. death. This is something kind of beyond even what um, like Kepri and, and Valkyrie were capable of. Yeah. Um, this is, this is, I, I love this answer. I'd totally forgotten about this kid. Um, the funny thing for this, for me is normally when multiple people answer the same, I pull them independently as you will see by the like seven Gregor, the snail answers we got this week. But the, 
the reason I pulled these collectively and just used Killer Kino's answer is because independent of each other, Killer Kino and Isaac both like grabbed the same two things. Uh-huh. The idea that um, Casey is is invited into the case 53 community where Sveta isn't and the, the, the God of death idea of his power and how, and how crazy that is. They both, I mean, and granted he's a very minor character that's only uh, around very briefly. So like, there's not a huge pool of things to pull from in regard to him, but like they made posts that were super similar to each other. So I just like, they both looked at this character and like arrived to the same general conclusions. It was really interesting. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's funny. All right, next we have Ace of Sword, who says, you fucked up there, meaning uh, us and how we frame the question. It's not Sveta you should have taken out of competition. Now you might as well change the question to, who is your case 53 and why is it Gregor the Snail? Because Gregor is the best. He might honestly be the most wholesome character in the story. At that point, I'm pretty sure he isn't even able to hate people. He's just a good dude who puts his friends before himself, and I'm so happy that he seems to be one of the few people in the Wormverse who's going to be in a happy and stable relationship. He deserves it. (laughs) Um, to, to clarify, I think why we said not, that's not Sveta, I, I didn't think it was necessarily because everyone was going to choose Sveta, although I, f- I did think quite a few people would, but I feel like we talk about Sveta a lot and yeah. I, I kind of wanted this question to be like, let's talk about some people we don't talk about that much. Yeah. Spotlight on the background characters. Exactly. Yeah. Sure. I agree. Um, and, and Gregor is fantastic. Um, yeah, as the next like six answers, just spoilers, are Gregor. <laughs> okay, all right. Moving on, Penitent Edgelord says, uh, Gregor the Snail. <laughs> uh, they say Gregor's interlude is one of the parts of Worm they remember most fondly, largely because of how well-realized Gregor felt as a character. His worldview and mindset were established beautifully. His apparent wisdom comes across as hard-earned, and he still struggles with, with his identity as a monster. On top of this, he comes across as self-aware without being excessively self-aware. His dry humor is genuinely funny, but he remains earnest and decent no matter who he's dealing with. Finally, he delivered one of the most emotionally p- impactful moments early uh, or early worm when he tries to help Faultline overcome the Manthan effect. Um, a, a lot of people cite the Leviathan attack as the point where they knew uh, that they were with Worm for the long haul. I knew I was hooked by the end of Gregor's interlude. That's great. Love it. Yeah, I love that 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 idea that like um, I think I think one of the things that made me hooked on Worm was actually not specifically Gregor, but the fact that Wildbo was able to jump in and out of different people's heads, different characters' yeah. heads, so so deftly that I was just like, oh, like he he's a fucking writer. I get it. Okay, yeah. I'm I'm in for this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know what yeah. you mean. Yeah. Uh, Muse of Doom 2 says Gregor the Snail, a true gentleman with a heart of gold who proved that you don't need good looks to be an awesome human being. True that. Yeah. MC White Thunder says I love Gregor the Snail. <laughs> he has such little screen time aside from early worm, but he's always been very good hearted. Remember when he strangled Faultline to try to induce a second trigger or a breakthrough, not caring if he were maimed because he would rather she w- had had better powers than he has an arm? I really love his background arc of becoming more confident and accepting Shamrock's affection, seeing her as more than just a chaser. Add that to the fact that he has one of the absolute coolest and most versatile powers in parahumans, the ability to generate and spray large amounts of chemical compounds. You can do so much with that. He practically has free containment foam, Scott. <gasps> You're right, MC White Thunder. You're right. Favorite character, Gregor. Done. Yeah, I thought so. All right, next we have Cutie Alice who says, it's got to be Gregor. <laughs> 
Like he is for Egg, Gregor's kind of an aspiring figure for me. I've never been happy about my appearance, and the way Gregor's made peace with this his is endearing. He knows it doesn't make him happy. He knows he can't change it, but he knows that there's more to life than that, and he lives by that philosophy. Every scene and interaction with Gregor paints a picture of a kind, empathetic man who is willing to go the extra mile for anyone he cares about and willing to give a chance to anyone he doesn't. Strong, stoic, but not without a sense of humor. Gregor the Snail is who I strive to be. That's a great answer, Alice. Thank you. That's beautiful. Fantastic. Ethical Ham Jimmies says, despite having pretty limited screen time, I really like Neuter. He seems like a cool, fun, carefree dude who couldn't be happier giving his drug saliva to some party girls in a nightclub. (laughs) But I always sense the deeper tragedy to the fact that he is essentially rogue from X-Men. He can never really touch anyone. It has been explained. uh, Sorry, it it hasn't been explored much at all, but I've definitely headcanoned that as a thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, and also he he's one of the ones with a, a pretty a pretty monstrous appearance, um, but yeah. he seems to just have such a like uh, uh, flippant attitude about it. Where to me that always seems like it's covering the pain, you know? Yeah, yeah. Up next, we have Cautious Crow, who says, I'm going to have to go with my girl, Shamrock. I was absolutely intrigued by her all throughout Worm as a Case 53 who seemed to be visually normal. And I love the way that Palanquin's own quest to find out more about Cauldron would slowly unfold in the background throughout the story. Beyond that, even before Sveta got a body, Shamrock was a perfect example of a member of a minority community that seemingly had it easier than many others, such as someone who lacks a visible disability or someone who is trans but passes perfectly. Despite this, she actually retains her memories of the horrors incidents horrors inflicted on her, making her potentially more damaged than some of the other Case 53s, just in ways that are less obvious. Despite this, she has managed to find happiness and is one of a few happy... One, is in one of the few happy, stable relationships in the parahuman universe, which has managed to last upwards of three years. That's got to be like a cape record. <laughs> Plus, I think her power is a pretty cool take on a domino domino style luck based power set in the parahumans universe. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, just yeah, I think the egg interlude kind of touched on on this idea of a person who is a member of, of this community, but like um, seemingly doesn't have to deal with the same things that they do um, and and how that relationship like changes and complicates the ways that she interacts with that community. Yeah. It, it makes it so that she doesn't really feel that she fits in with the, with non case of threes, but she also doesn't feel like she quite fits in with the case of threes. And that's a, right. that's, that's tragic in its way. Yeah. Thunderfulness. And sorry. Go also, ahead. also these people keep talking about this successful relationship and just like you're, you're dooming it. Yeah. Everyone the, the, literally the, had the one same of thought. going to die. I was like, Oh no, Oh no, please. No. Um, Okay, Thunderfulness says, It's unclear if he's a case of D3, but I have to go with Biju. I immediately recognized her as my favorite Word of God cape, the locked-in girl. She's fascinatingly creepy and tragic at the same time. And now she's a dude named Cox. Yep, I think I'd read the locked-in girl thing before and been highly disturbed by it, so so I'm glad that's in the story now. That's good. Hooray! Sarah Penguin says, I'm going with a tentative Hexy. Loved her description, and I'm sucker for a witch's hat. I just hope she doesn't do something stupid because Egg wants it. Yeah, she's probably going to do something stupid because Egg wants it. Yeah, I think we're heading that way. Yep. Uh, Wolf Tamer says, neuter. Fuck yeah. Short and sweet. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Cool Noob says, I miss Gully. I'm pretty sure that was her name. The girl with the giant shovel who showed up at the Echidna fight. She seemed cool. Does anyone know what happened to her? We don't actually know what happened to Gully, Matt. Um, I think back in Arc 13, they see a picture of her. I think it's when they're at the the creepy guy who takes the pictures of K-53s. Oh, yeah. 
Um, Svetra just says Gully isn't around anymore. And that's really all we know about her. She's just not around anymore. So, okay. Yeah. I, for some reason, if you'd asked me, I would have said that she died in the cauldron base, but I, uh, yeah. Okay. I don't know. I think it's like, I looked it up cause I honestly, I couldn't remember. I, this was not from memory guys. I, I definitely looked this up. Um, she was injured in the cauldron stuff, but was carted away by pretender. Oh, okay. Interesting. So interesting. That's so just, that's ominous. So just, yeah. You where, know. The, where the fuck is pretender? <laughs> where the fuck is, Wait, isn't pretender dead? Well, okay. Look, where's, 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 uh, God, what's his name? Satyr satirical. We're satirical, Scott. I don't know, Matt. <sighs> okay. All right. Um, Vice Versailles says it was weld up until recently. His interlude back in Worm painted a really wonderful picture of a really interesting character. Physically strong, but buckling under the weight of expectations set by his background and position that he just can't fully carry when he's been a young adult his whole life. His mind reads young. His veneration of Director Armstrong as a surrogate father figure, how he hangs on to every word of advice given to him, his discomfort at being called a brute, but his lack of courage to protest it, and eventually his, his defeated, I just got here, after the meeting with his new team goes wrong. All of it makes him out to be a poor kid being forced to grow up too fast. The first thing we see him do as he's flying in to round out the Brockton Bay Awards team is grasp desperately to the data packet provided to him Um to see if it will make up for his lack of experience in D&D parlance, trying to make up for a negative wisdom with positive intelligence. It's the kind of thing we all go through growing up, and because of his circumstances as a K-53, he's literally having to start from square one, rather than just feeling like it. Juxtapose that with his brute power and the damage he might do if his finger slips near some alloy, and the resulting walking on eggshells outlook, loaded word choice for this episode, I know, uh, and it certainly had me rooting for him. But now, in Ward, Weld's not looking too good. I got the returning character grin seeing him with, uh, with Sveta when they were reintroduced together and while representing the Wardens in Crystal Clear's interlude. But after he just keeps getting shadier and shadier, especially with this new stunt to throw Sveta underneath the KCT3's party bus so he can get back <laughs> in on it. Um, if he's not careful, I might have to start gushing about Gregor like everyone else. I, I like this answer a lot because I think if we had asked this question a month ago... A lot more people would have said Weld. Mm -hmm. um, and just a lot of the very recent stuff with Weld has really tainted a lot of people's opinions of him. And I, I'm kind of there, too. Like, I, I've, I've liked Weld a lot in Worm. I've wanted to like Weld a lot in this book, but he's just struggling. He's just struggling. And yeah. It really, it's really hurting. Right. I, I don't, like, in my opinion, I don't see him as, like, oh, he's, he has fallen from grace. I see it more no, as, no, like, yeah. he, he has revealed to me that he's probably kind of cracking under the strain more than like he, he's really good at covering it up that's almost his whole mo sure. is like seeming yeah. and vulnerable um but uh he's not so i've just uh matt i've just received um a message uh -huh. this is a late this is live breaking news uh, -huh. uh gully is dead okay she just died just now so oh <laughs> uh, gully's dead so okay <laughs> good to know all right, next next up we have uh, Death of the Artist who says, Yo, Taylor, I'm really happy for you. I'm going to let you finish, but Hunch has to be one of the best Case 53s of all time. It's bad is one of the funniest lines in Worm easily. I wanted to know what his powers are so badly. I had to look up who this was because I did not even remember it. So that's my response to this. Um, I think I have a vague like visual memory of what Hunch looks like. Um but uh, does, does, do they have a hunch? I think they have a hunch. 
Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I, I don't remember that very well either. Okay. All right. Uh, Extas Nouveau says Nyx, Nyx with a Y, uh, for several reasons. She has a cool optic, red skin, and steaming slits all over her body. As a Slaughterhouse Nine member, uh, she likely has an interesting and terrifying backstory. She has a cool power that is versatile and dangerous. Remember, she makes that toxic smoke stranger stuff. Yep. Uh, she, there's an interesting duality with Nyx, her twin. I, th- I thought it was her twin, um, who has a similar name and power. One of them is a hero and one a villain. One one is not a case of D3. The other is um, case of D3. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're probably both cauldron capes. Um, and we have seen that their powers are probably related. So there's probably a cool story hidden. I, it's funny because, like, I totally have, I, I'm just realizing now reading this that I have a fully formed headcanon that, like, one of them took the cauldron vial and then they both triggered <laughs> or something like that and caused one of them to be a case of three and the other one. Yeah. Like, I'm sure it's funny because th- there's no evidence of that. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's where my brain went. Hey, you just grab those theories and hold on to them until they're proven wrong. So that's, that's, how, that's how you do this whole literary analysis thing, right? Yeah, I mean, that's how I've been doing it so far, so I hope so. <laughs> All right, next up we have Lost Man 138 who says, Weld, because I get the sense that he's a great soldier, but a terrible leader. And I think that's extremely fair. Yeah, that's, that's the most condensed form of what we've been saying, yeah. Yeah. A hero of old iron says they're going to go with custodian. Oh, good answer. Not really sure why, but she just has a vibe that I find really potent. She's from earth C. And from what I can tell, she was a second class citizen there. After that, she joined cauldron and was likely instrumental in building their facility. And even after gold morning, she stuck around with teacher to keep things running in their fight. Contessa diverted her by pointing out that teacher would significantly damage or even destroy the facility. If it meant containing the situation. I see her as someone who has ha- who had very little, having her whole physical existence taken taken from her. From that point on, she's forced to be both more and less than a person, dedicating the rest of her existence purely to the thing that she's built. In a thousand years, if if humanity survives that long, people will still talk about a foreboding maze of absolutely pristine hallways haunted by the ghosts of its builders. Very cool, IMO. Yeah, I agree. very cool. I for some reason I hadn't. Like in my my brain hadn't filed custodian as a case fifty three, but like of course, yeah, of yeah, course. right. I mean, it's I mean, I, I, like like a door maker and um, and and um, clairvoyant would also qualify, but but you don't think of them because they work for Cauldron, so yeah, yeah, maybe that's the difference. It's just that because they're on that on the Cauldron side, that yeah. I just filed them in my brain somewhere different. But yeah, yeah, I makes think, sense. I think that's a great answer. Yeah, cool. Um. Next week's discussion question. Talk about one way that the concept of memory is used in Ward. Yeah, this is a this is a tough one. Tough one, kind of. I mean, it's just, I think it's very open-ended, so maybe it's not tough, but I just want to, let's just talk about memory. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's something that has been throughout this story and almost to the point where it was like staring us in the face and we did talk about it, but maybe not in the sense of saying like, let's talk specifically about the concept of memory as a theme. Yeah. So that's what I want to do. Yeah. And maybe in, as part of that answer, work through how Tristan and Byron relate to memory, similar to how the rest of breakthrough. That'd be cool. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's all we've got for you this week on we've got ward. You guys are all part of this show. So feel free to provide us with advice, questions or thoughts on this week's reading. 
You can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or at our Twitter account at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter account, where you see me complain about the Oscars, is at scottdaily85. And Matt's is at mordinamail. What do you complain about on Twitter, Matt? I just retweet funny things that I see mainly. Man, that's so wholesome. You're really doing this thing right. I, I mean, yeah, I guess so. I, I tr- I, that came out sarcastic, but I, I meant yeah, it. <laughs> I, just, I just mute everything that displeases me. So, so all I see is funny things now. Am I, am I muted? No. <laughs> oh my God, I'm muted. <laughs> if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this and all the other shows we do over at doofmedia.com. Reminder, that's where you can find our newest show, Kingslingers. It's doofmedia.com slash kingslingers, where you'll find the links to subscribe to that. Comes out tomorrow. I'm so excited. Listen to it. Yeah, I'm excited too. Um, And if you like any of our shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art and costume contests, hangout sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions, and our excellent Discord chat. Uh, as always, make sure you head over to patreon.com slash wildbow and donate to Wildbow because this is his world. We're just playing in it. This week, special thanks to new patrons, uh, Bidoof's Felix M., Sophie S and TVC grid. We really appreciate y'all. Um, yeah. Thank you everyone so much. Yeah. It, it, it really, it's, it's, it means the world to us. We got so much. I know I always say this, but like this whole thing is fully funded by you guys. So everything we do, your guys' funding makes it happen. Um, the new show I'm about to l- launch with Matt is literally was a goal on our, our Patreon. We're only doing the show because enough of you supported us. Um, so it's, absolutely means the world yeah you guys made it happen Mm -hmm. Um, and if if you cannot afford to donate right now of course that's fine uh you can help us out by just listening to us talk right now downloading the episode sharing the episode retweeting anything we tweet all of it just retweet it all um or of course you can leave us a rating or review on apple podcasts on stitcher on spotify wherever you're listening to the show hit the five star button write a review and hit submit that helps us too. It really does. And if you want to do us like a double favor, then also do that for Kingslingers because oh, yeah. this is the first week or so that it's out and that really, really, really matters. It's like so freaking important on Apple's whole algorithm thing. So just, yeah, yeah, just do that. If you've do been, it before you even listen to it. it Wait, no, that's, that's dishonest. <laughs> Don't do that. Listen to it. I mean, I mean, if you have been putting off doing some iTunes reviews, if you've had that on your calendar and just never gotten around to it, Doing it like right now would be so, so nice. So nice. Yeah. Um, related, if you're putting do iTunes reviews on your calendar, that's a little weird. I mean, maybe they're just really organized, Scott. Sure. Um, anyway, that's all we have for you this week. <laughs> we'll be back next week to find out what happens when people stop being polite and start cracking worlds. That's a, that's a real world reference. The MTV show Real World. Thanks for I didn't ex- know if anyone was going to get it. I, I didn't. Thanks for so, explaining it. That's how I do jokes. I explain them after. I mean, I, I mean, I, I had to read it, so I'm glad someone explained it. Oh.